As we begin, let me ask you, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you fail? Maybe you remember that college research project that just didn't work. It failed. Uh, Maybe you asked for some new budget at work and it didn't come in. Feels like failure. Maybe you left the cake in the oven again. Failure. What do you do when you fail? And what about spiritual failure? What do you do in the midst of spiritual failure? Imagine the church put on a chocolate evening. We have done that before, actually, a chocolate evening. And it looked so promising. But the attendance in the end was poor. Imagine the church put on, again, one of their annual gingerbread house evenings. The vibe was good. In the end, only one person signed up for Christianity Explored. Imagine those famous men's curry nights. Another one of those. There was banter. But revival was still not breaking out. What do you do when it seems like There is spiritual failure. Here we are in 1 Kings. And Elijah had orchestrated a big event, a contest. The Lord versus Baal. And the Lord triumphed. The people confessed, the Lord, he is God. And now the rain was coming after a long drought. And Elijah couldn't help but think, wow, now repentance is coming. Now there'll be revival. But as Elijah heads to uh, the palace with the king, what happens next? Well, King Ahab gets home and he speaks to his wife, the Baal worshipper Jezebel. He tells her what happened. He tells her about how the prophets of Baal have failed. Elijah prayed and there was fire. and The Lord, he is God and the prophets of Baal, where they were put to death. What happened? Jezebel's eyes, we might imagine, lit up, but not with excitement, but with anger. Even after that famous contest, she would not believe. And she's allowed to continue in the palace. Fierce with rage, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah. It's there in verse 2. Jezebel announces, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life, Elijah, as one of them, those prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. There was no reason to doubt her. She was a fierce woman. She'd killed prophets before. And so Elijah, understandably, runs south, crosses the border into Judah for safety. There'd been such a grand victory. The Lord sent fire from heaven. But in the space of a couple of verses, victory turned to defeat. It was supposed to end in revival. But it ends with Elijah on the run again. For Elijah, everything will seem complete and utter failure. So here we are in this moment. We're in this book of 1 Kings watching a spiritual decline. And we come to a moment of spiritual failure. Or so it appears, at least, to Elijah. God's servant has to deal with failure. Failure is a thing that can hit us hard, isn't it? Failure can crush But our passage today is going to show us it need not have the final word. We're going to consider today then, as we think about failure, 
and how we approach it, we're going to notice how the Lord deals with Elijah. Two things to see. And the first one is this. Notice in our passage today, the Lord's care in the wilderness. The Lord's care in the, in the wilderness, verses 4 to 8. Elijah's run for his life. He's made it to a place called Beersheba. He's made it through passport control, despite the queues. Uh, he's made it through border control. He's in another country. He's, he's safe. He's safe now. But what does he do? The great man of prayer, no less. What now? Well, notice what he does. Verse 3. He dismisses his servant. Funny little detail there, isn't it, in verse 3? Elijah left his servant in Beersheba. Little detail. I think it says a lot. I think we can say here, Elijah is hanging up his boots. He's had enough. He's giving up being a prophet. He's had a servant in his prophetic ministry, and now he dismisses him. You're free to look for further employment. I'm not doing this anymore. And then notice what else Elijah does. In the midst of failure, he left his servant, but verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah runs in his failure. He goes off to be on his own. You can imagine him thinking, I just want to be left alone. It's the kind of thing we think, isn't it? But his isolation doesn't help, does it? It only intensifies his experience. He now says, I want to die. Now, you might think that's a bit bizarre, because wasn't he just running for his life a moment ago? Why does he want to die now? Well, because he's giving up on life now. You see, the very fact that he has to run for his life again makes him want to die, because nothing has changed. And he thought it would change. He thought Mount Carmel, fire from heaven, would mean repentance, so he wouldn't have to be on the run anymore. Something started there for sure, but it soon fizzled out. And so Elijah here, he's not so much depressed, but he's utterly exhausted. He just can't go back to living life as the lone prophet again. He can't go back to it after this bitter, bitter disappointment. Remember, Elijah's lived his life on the run through a drought, risked his life, orchestrated a contest. He's put to death the prophets of Baal. For three and a half years, he is totally knackered. He's broken. Someone writing for the Journal of Biblical Counseling thinks that the phrase, or the phrase burnout is the right description of Elijah here. Here's how they describe burnout. I wonder if it's familiar to you. Burnout is the modern day term for feeling despondent and defeated. It often afflicts those with demanding responsibilities Those who suffer from burnout feel disheartened and depleted, unable to summon hope, courage, or strength to carry on. For such a person, hope in God's care, hope in his plans for the person's life, and his ability to help throughout each day, much less another duty, may have slipped away. The person experiencing burnout might have questions like, have my efforts meant anything at all? Should I continue in this role? Can I continue even if I want to? Do I need a break from my responsibilities? That's Elijah, isn't it? Collapsed, defeated in the wilderness, under the broom tree. It's not looking good, is it? He's even asked for his life 
to be taken from him. But notice the Lord's care. Notice the Lord's care. When we are broken, he is not. He cares. Elijah lies down as if to die. Now the Lord sends an angel to raise him up and bring him back to life, as it were. Look at verse 5. And Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. It's familiar, isn't it? Is this ringing some bells? It happened only a few chapters ago, didn't it? The Lord fed Elijah by ravens and through the widow. The Lord cares. Elijah is fed and cared for again. The Lord is preserving his prophet. He's preserving his prophet so he can continue to preserve and protect for himself his people. Do you see, Elijah may look like he is done. But the Lord cares for him. The Lord is not finished with him yet. Sure, things look like a failure. But as we see the Lord's care, we know we're far from the end of the story. Carmel looked like a failure. Nothing had changed. But here is the Lord at work. His plans are still on track. Now, I think that's a huge encouragement for the depleted and the disheartened, isn't it? The Lord's care amidst failure tells us things aren't finished yet. If you know the Lord's care, his sustaining, no matter what the failure, the Lord's plans are still on track. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And notice the Lord's particular care here. The Lord gives Elijah just what he needs. I think it's especially wonderful noticing how he doesn't dismiss his servant out of turn. You know, when people fail us, we often say, oh, well, go away then. But the Lord doesn't say, oh, you silly fool, Elijah, for going to the broom tree and lying down. The Lord acknowledges the pressures we face. He acknowledges that sometimes people are filled with animosity towards us. Sometimes people are filled with ill intent towards us. And it is exhausting. And the Lord says, as it were to Elijah here, I know how taxing this pressure can be. I will care for you. The Lord knows that our Christian life and service can have mental impacts and physical impacts. We can get dispirited and that can play out in our bodies. And so the Lord cares. And, and, and the particular nature of it, what is it? Frankly, it's just a, it's a good night's sleep, isn't it? A cup of tea, a good healthy meal and a rest. That's what the Lord has provided here. We might ask ourselves sometimes in the wake of failure, is there food in the cupboard? Well, praise the Lord for his care. Or maybe I know someone who's worn out. Can I bring them food and express the Lord's care in that sort of way? Maybe you're experiencing burnout and you're feeling everything's failing. Well, is there scope to say yes to some things and no to other things? Well, that's the Lord's care for you then, isn't it? Say no sometimes. Eat well. Go get some sleep in. The Lord knows your limits. I wonder if you do. Here's the Lord's care in the wilderness, and it's physical and it's practical. So we might then ask, what can we do practically to help ourselves and others take care of our 
physical needs? We might well ask that. Elijah needs his bodily limits catered for. Perhaps before he needs his mental and spiritual issues confronting. But they do still need addressing, don't they? You know, that's, that's the big thing here, isn't it? When we're exhausted, when we're burnt out, when we feel like everything's failed, we need to be taken out of the narratives we tell ourselves, don't we? We need to be thrown onto God's word. You know, when the church is exhausted, we, our emotions and our desires can sometimes be corrupted. Our thinking can be skewed, can't it? Do you think Elijah was thinking rationally? He gave a lot of credit to Jezebel, didn't he? And her threat, as if somehow that could derail the Lord's plans, as if really it was a failure. He gave Jezebel way, way, way too much credit, and he didn't give the Lord, the almighty, the sovereign creator over all time and space, he didn't give the Lord enough credit, did he? His thinking was skewed. He needed the word of the Lord to set him straight. And see, what could have happened for Elijah is what can so often sometimes happen to us, is that we isolate ourselves in our exhaustion, and what, and what happens? You find yourself locked in a room, as it were, with only our own voice speaking. Our worries, our anxieties, our confusion, just kind of all bouncing there around in there with us. Sometimes we isolate ourselves and we don't find clarity, we just find lots of noise. The noise of our own heads. <laughs> I think this is, by the way, the reason why uh, monasteries and the monastic life fails. I'll just say that as, a, as an aside here. Here's Elijah under the broom tree. Might seem like a quiet space, but who says it's quiet on the inside? Doesn't mean you're in, in the quiet and the clear on the inside, does it? We need the word of God to bring us clarity and peace, don't we? And that is the, what the Lord does now as he draws Elijah out. The angel appears to Elijah again and tells him to eat and drink some more because he needs to go on a journey. The Lord is taking Elijah to Mount Horeb, which is another name for the very famous Bible place, Mount Sinai. Sinai was where the Lord met with Moses. It was where the nation of Israel was established. It was where the Lord made promises. It was also a place of failure, wasn't it? The golden calves. Seems like a quite an excellent place. For the Lord to take burnt out and exhausted Elijah as he feels his failure, as he feels he can't carry on, Sinai seems the right place to go. And so we see our second thing in the passage. The Lord's word at the mountain. The Lord's word at the mountain, verses 9 to 18. Elijah arrives and the Lord says to Elijah, verse 9, what are you doing here? Now he can't be telling off Elijah or being disparaging it kind of sounds like that but remember he's lifted up Elijah and brought him to Mount Sinai so it can't be that I think it is as one person put it an invitation to speak Elijah state your case what can I help you with what why are you here it's an invitation for burdened Elijah to unburden himself and so Elijah gets to speak to the Lord verse 10 and what does he say I've been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's often accused here of um, moaning uh, or exaggerating. 
Perhaps you read it that way earlier. But take him at face value. What is he actually saying? Elijah says here, Lord, I'm jealous for you. I'm protective of you and your glory. You as the covenant Lord of your people. But the people, the other side of this great covenant, they're they're breaking the covenant, Lord. What's Elijah doing? He's saying judgment's needed. And he he goes on to state the evidence to lay out, as it were, the criminal or the covenant charges. What's he say? Altars have been broken. Prophets have been killed. And and now only Elijah is left and they're even trying to kill him too. Why are these people carrying on with idols, cooperating with Jezebel? They're in rebellion. Lord, something needs to be done. Elijah is appealing before the Lord as judge. Sometimes people say um, Elijah's got issues here because he says, I'm the only one left. And you might remember from last week that there were some other prophets that were hidden in some caves. And Elijah says, I'm the only one. But I think he, he means to say that despite those details. Because I think he's trying to say he shouldn't be the only prophet out in public. Yes, there are other prophets, but where are they? They're still in the caves. There's been the big Mount Carmel moment. The Lord has displayed his power and his purpose. And still it's only Elijah calling the people to repentance. So the Lord asked Elijah, what are you doing? And Elijah says, I'm issuing charges. It seems like Elijah feels that an act of judgment will give him the reassurance he needs. And that may be, but the Lord wants to show him something first. Look at verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Wind. Earthquakes, fires, kind of, well, weird biblical stuff again, right? But they are actually all markers of the presence of God. Take earthquakes. Earthquakes are, as it were, the tremors and shaking of the ground as the Lord Almighty's footprints <laughs> land with all his weight and glory. Elijah has the markers here of the presence of the Lord. But the Lord does not appear to be there. Where is the Lord is the question. Wind. He should be here. Where where is he? Uh, um, Earthquake. No. Fire. Where is is the Lord? I guess that's been Elijah's big question underneath it all in his burnout. It's all gone wrong. The people are breaking the covenant. There's been fire. There's been power. But where are you, Lord? Where's the revival? I guess here the Lord is trying to tell Elijah and us that we needn't focus so much on what we see. We need to focus on what we hear. Focus not on what you can see, but on what the Lord says. See, Elijah thought thought the fire at Carmel was supposed to bring revival. That's how he interpreted what he saw. So when it didn't happen, he broke down. 
But Elijah forgot that there's something that supersedes the power. There's something that supersedes the wind and the fire and the earthquake, something more important than that. And it's what the Lord says. That's more important, isn't it? Yeah. And so there's a sound. And Elijah must come out of the cave to hear it. It's the word of the Lord. I love, by the way, the way Elijah now wraps his face in his cloak because he knows now he is coming into the presence of the Lord, right? He steps into the presence of the Lord. And it's a wake-up call. Listen up, Elijah. Listen. See, Elijah's expectations have been part of the problem. And he needs to be set straight. That's so often the case for us, isn't it? He thought the Lord had to work in big displays, fire from heaven. But the thing is, big displays can still mean unbelief, can't they? I mean, just look at how people treated Jesus. Failure at these big moments doesn't actually tell us all we need to know. The Lord stands behind history and we need his word to understand it, don't we? We need his word for reassurance. So the Lord says to Elijah, again, why are you here? And Elijah restates his complaint, and now comes a word of prophecy. Now, if you're the kind of person who likes to scribble in your Bible, don't scribble over the words, but next to it or what have you, this is a moment where you kind of just put a little star here. Because here's a word of prophecy that's going to overhang the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings as well. We have to remember this bit. Uh, The Lord says, okay, look, you bring the people against me. You charge them. Well, okay, Elijah, I shall anoint three agents of judgment. The Lord tells Elijah, go from here and anoint Hazael, king over Syria, Jehu, king over Israel, and Elisha to be prophet in your place. These will bring judgment. It's pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? The Lord, it seems, agrees with Elijah and judgment is announced. Hazael is going to bring some destruction and some death. Jehu will carry it on and after that, Elisha will clean up. Someone has called these people the three assassins. Makes us tremble a bit, doesn't it? But it's not all the Lord says. See, things have not been as good as Elijah would have liked. The rebellion has continued and there hasn't been revival. But things actually aren't going to be as bad as he might think at this point either. The final agent, the final assassin, what is his name? Elisha. Now, remember, Bible names are significant. They are important. What does Elisha's name mean? It means the Lord saves. See, everything has looked like failure. But guess what? The Lord is still about his work of judgment and rescue. And we see that, don't we? Did you notice it in verse 18? Did you see it there? The Lord keeps speaking. Three agents of judgment are coming. Yet, says the Lord, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that are not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here's Elijah, broken, burnt out. And he's had to be physically ministered to. But he's also needed to be spiritually ministered to, hasn't he? He's needed the word of the Lord, hoping God's care, strength to carry on. He struggled. What's the point? Should I even bother? But the word of the Lord comes to him. His vision is reset. His expectations are reset. Yeah, it didn't go all that well at Carmel. Well, the Lord is going to sort that out. And he's still going to be at work in rescue through judgment. Evil kings may persist. But guess what? The Lord is still sending his prophets. Elisha will come next. 
See, even when it looks like failure, the Lord is still at work. Elijah wondered, will my efforts ever amount to anything? And the Lord reminds Elijah, he is in control. His plans will continue. The Lord said, anoint, um, who was it? Hazael, king of Syria. Guess what? The Lord is still king over the nations. The Lord says, anoint Jehu, king over Israel. Well, guess what? The Lord is still king over Israel. The Lord says, anoint Elisha as prophet. Guess what? The Lord's prophets will continue. His word will never, never be silenced. Elijah needed the word of the Lord to reset him as he was burnt out, as he'd experienced failure. So often, friends, that is what we need. Because we don't often see things right, do we? Um, The other day, I was taking a screwdriver to my daughter's scooter. Now, if Iris hadn't been distracted, she probably would have yelled at me. If you know Iris, you'll know she's quite loud. No, what are you doing, Iris might have said. The dismantling looked destructive. Uh, The brake on the scooter was broken. And now she might think everything's going to be worse. As it was, Iris wasn't watching me and my screwdriver and this broken mess on the floor. Stanley was. What are you doing, Dad? He's a two-year-old. Too little to presume. He was fascinated picking up the screws I was trying to use. I'm taking off the broken brake, Stanley, I said. And I'm putting on a new one. The judgment was the old brake was broken. And off it came and a new one went on. See, if you'd looked at me there, frankly, whenever I do DIY or anything like that, you'll think that's a catastrophe. But it was cleared up when I said what I was doing. And so it is in the face of failure when we face it. As we face spiritual failure in all sorts of things, what do we need? We need the word of the Lord to clear it up. We need to have his vision of things, don't we? Despite the failure at Carmel, the Lord was at work. And the Lord gave his word here in reassurance to broken Elijah. So it must be the thing that the Lord's word is what resets us. I wonder if you know the teaching of the scriptures on the time in history in which we live. What are the Lord's purposes for today? What does success look like? What does failure look like? Do you know what the Lord's word says? What his vision of now is? Do you know what the Lord promises in the midst of hardship and opposition? Do you know what the Lord says about setbacks of all kinds? Friends, it might be a good idea to find out, mightn't it? Not least of all for us, not least of all for our church family, who we might want to encourage. What words of the Lord do you need to hear as we face, to, as we face spiritual disappointments? If we don't know what the Lord says, we might just want to go and find out. Here's the Lord, and he said, my plans are still on track. My promise of judgment and rescue will follow your ministry, Elijah. And if Elijah had any doubts, they were answered immediately. Elijah goes on his way, and in the last two verses, we notice Elijah immediately meets one of the people he's supposed to anoint. It's Elisha, verse 19. Look where Elisha is. He's in the fields plowing. After three and a half years of drought, this is pretty good. It's rained. And now crops can be planted. And Elisha is plowing with 12 oxen. So the scene is of quite a wealthy farming family, I think. And Elijah spots him, chucks his cloak on Elisha. It's a symbolic anointing of Elisha. 
So far, so good. Now look at verse 20, though. It tells us, and now Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah. But he said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, some people uh, would read this and say, Elisha seems a bit reluctant here. I think that'd be very disappointing and not much reassurance for Elijah, who's needed it so badly. (laughs) Think about it. Think about what's going on here, though. Elisha knows following Elijah is a big deal. So what does he say? He says, if this call is serious, serious, if I've got to take it serious, if this is goodbye, well, then I better say goodbye. Elijah says to him, okay, you decide what you need to do. And people, again, think poorly of Elisha. I think because we remember some words of the Lord Jesus in Luke 9. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus was saying? Follow me. And someone said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand back to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It reminds us of Elisha. And it might make us critical of Elisha. Is the Lord critical of Elisha here? I don't think the Lord is critical of Elisha. I think he's getting us to think more deeply about him. See, what does Elisha go back to do? Look at verse 21. Elisha returned from following Elijah and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them. He destroys his tractors. And he boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen that holds the tractors together, the I don't think it's going to work anymore, right? He set them on fire. And he gave the sacrifice to the people, and they ate, and he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Elisha goes back, and it's not to push his plough, but to burn it. He sacrifices the oxen. He will not use them again. And he shares the offering, we presume, with his family. You see, Elisha goes back, not because he can't sever his ties with his family. He goes back in order to sever his ties with his family, so he can get on board with Elisha. Do you notice how wonderful that is for us here? It's a great episode to end today's passage with. Because at the beginning we had Elijah giving up. What's the Lord doing in failure? And by the end we see the Lord's plans and purposes continuing as Elijah single-mindedly sets out behind Elijah, anointed by Elijah, just as the Lord had said. See, the Lord is still at work. There is another prophet, single-minded, behind Elijah. The Lord is still at work. The failure that we feared earlier, it does not have the last word. It doesn't have the last word. Maybe you've known disappointment in your experience of the Christian life. Maybe you have seen spiritual failure. Maybe you personally feel like a bit of a spiritual failure yourself. Uh, Confused, exhausted, broken. We see here, don't we, that in God's providence, our brokenness and the appearance of failure, it never has to be the end. It never has to have the last word. As we close, I'd like to leave us thinking about John the Baptist. Ollie, how would you manage that, you think? John the Baptist had been a bit like Elijah, hadn't he? Calling for repentance in the wilderness. And he'd had a bit of success. Some people were baptised in the Jordan. Do you remember that? But no one complained very much, did they, when John the Baptist was thrown in prison? 
And I wonder what he thought when he was in prison. I wonder if he thought, man, I'm knackered. And and all for what? It seems like a failure. Well, I hope John the Baptist would have remembered Elijah. And how the Lord told Elijah to anoint Elisha. I hope John the Baptist would remember who he anointed to follow him. One who would fulfill the figure of Elisha. Elisha, whose name means the Lord saves. You see, John the Baptist anointed Jesus. And he is the coming judge, just like Elisha. And he is the saviour, just like Elisha. You see, the Lord's word to Elijah was fulfilled. And the Lord's word to John the Baptist was fulfilled. And even though Elijah looked a failure, even though John the Baptist looked a failure, even though the Lord Jesus looked a failure, the cross left in its wake an empty tomb. Failure need never have the last word. Failure in the hands of God Almighty is transformed to glory, to God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Our loving, gracious Father, thank you for how you speak these words to us today. Thank you for how you show us your care. Thank you for showing us what we need. Maybe some of us here tonight just need a rest and a good meal. And that's your care for us. Perhaps we need in the church to be going about that business. Father, thank you for showing us how we need your words. And I pray that we might be a church family that ministers the word to one another. That our vision might be reset. Even as we see failure, even as we see setbacks, might our vision be yours. Set by your very word. And so, Father, um, fill us with that vision today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.